open up your Bibles to Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. This is actually a text that's been on my heart and was on my heart and mind several times during my sabbatical. Um, and I think it's really appropriate for us to take, maybe take a pause and to look at it and see what God would have for us in this text. It's a well-known text. It's the fruit of the Spirit. Um, and so you're, many of you will be familiar with it, but my prayer is that God will stir our affections for it in a new way, or at least reignite our affections for him through it. And so let me read it to you, Galatians 5, starting in verse 16, going all the way to verse 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for they are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And for those who belong to Christ Jesus, they have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. So if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So in this text, we have two opposing forces. One is the Holy Spirit that is sealed in your soul when you commit your life to Christ, and the other is what is called your flesh. So the question that I think is healthy to ask is, what does Paul mean by the flesh? So when you see that word flesh, it's that existence, that season of time between salvation and glorification. Those are two big words. So let me kind of hammer that out. Salvation is that moment when you heard the gospel, that Jesus has come from perfect heaven to broken earth, and he has died on a cross in our place, that, that he took the sin that we deserved, that the punishment that we deserved. He stood in our place. We deserved death. But Jesus didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave and declared that the death that was coming for us has been Defeated, And in that moment of resurrection, freedom was available to us all. So if you hear that gospel and you say, yes, that's what I believe. The moment you first believe that is salvation. At its core, salvation means deliverance. Okay? So when you say, yes, I believe that Jesus was and is God and he died for my sins, he rose from the grave and I commit and surrender my life to him, in that moment you are delivered from the grips of the world and of death. Salvation has come. Now, what is glorification? The glorification of the Christian is that point in time when we get to experience God's glory in its fullest, in its highest. It's when we get to experience the deepest fellowship with God we could ever have. It's the Garden of Eden restored. It's that moment when you're not tempted to fall away anymore. When Revelation talks about no more tears, no more pain. That's glorification. That's true freedom. It's finality. Like 
Are there days when you're trying to read your Bible, you're studying, and, and it just feels like something isn't clicking? You ever felt like that? Like, it just feels foggy, like something isn't right here. That's the flesh. But there will be a day when everything will be clear, when there will be true freedom, where you won't feel like you can't hear from him, or you don't know what he wants, or you don't know what is missing. You will live in glory. Now, in the moment we are in now between salvation and glorification, we experience the fullness of the flesh. It's those areas of your heart, your body, and your mind that still desire the things that are not of God's, the things of yourself that you haven't completely given over to God. And the flesh and the spirit, they are at war right now. Paul says, he says, they are opposed to each other. They have different goals. They want different things for, different things for your mind. They want different things for your body. They have different things for your heart. And in this moment, even while I am talking, they are battling. It wants you to focus, your flesh wants you to focus on anything else besides the Word of God. It wants you to think about the cowboys. It wants you to think about how I'm wearing a hoodie and not a button down while I'm preaching. It wants you to think of anything else while I'm preaching. It wants, to, it wants you to think that I'm young, so what do I have to say to you? It wants you to think that you've had a really hard week, and you're, you're stressing, and you're anxious. You're, you're, it wants you to think about how your kid is running around the room crazy, right? There's just so many things that the flesh will try to grab onto you, but the Spirit, the Spirit wants you to hear the Word of God. It wants to have your, to stir your affections for Him. It wants you to know Him. It wants you to learn something about who you are in Christ. It wants to reveal to the, place, the places in your heart where the flesh is winning that in this very moment, right now, they are battling two opposing forces. And here's the deal. It will be like that until you enter glory, until glorifications. Now, there are seasons when this battle will feel small, where the voice of the Spirit is much louder than the voice of the flesh, where you can clearly say, oh yeah, that's a lie. I know that that's not true about me, or I know that's not true about God. And, and there are seasons where the flesh, it will feel like it comes at you with a sledgehammer. And there's just no way you're going to win. It just feels overwhelming, and it's exhausting. But it's not as though the battle is always exhausting. Some victories are easily won. Some battles are barely won, and there will be some battles with the flesh that will be lost. But the one thing, the one thing that we must protect ourselves from is thinking that we are so holy, that we have it so figured out, that there is no battle at all. That there is no battle at all between the flesh and the spirit. Because here's the deal. The spirit and the flesh both promise the same thing. They do. They both promise the same thing, but only one can deliver, and that promise is freedom. That's what they both promise. The Spirit's promise is you are headed towards freedom in Christ. That's why Paul says in Galatians 5.1, Steve read it earlier, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So Christ has set us free from the chains of slavery to sin. He has set us free from anxiety, and in Christ the promise is, if you enjoy me, if you worship me, if you follow me, then you will have freedom. You will have 
peace. But here's the thing. The flesh is making the exact same promise. The exact same promise. So I want to be clear. How does the promise of the flesh sound? What does that promise of freedom sound like? It can show up in one of two ways. The first is that the flesh will try to move you from freedom in Christ to freedom in legalism. The flesh says, if you do these things, and if you don't do these things, then those things will stir the affections of God for you. That that God will have favor on you if you do this, and if you don't do this. But here's the thing, once you do that thing, what happens? The flesh just raises the bar again, and he raises the bar again. So once you do that thing, and then you do that thing, and you do that thing, well, he says, well, what if you do this now? And now you have to do this until being a Christian doesn't actually feel like freedom at all. It feels like slavery. It it feels like you're trapped because you can never win because you can never be good enough. You just can't. You can never be perfect. There is always another rule to keep, another thing to do to reach perfection. And we begin to feel like our sin is something that we need to conquer in our own power in order to be okay with Christ. But the thing is that we, in this time between salvation and glory, will never be able to conquer sin. We, in our own power, will never be able to do it. Now, with the help of the Spirit, we can learn to identify the temptations of sin, but the battle will always be there. And if we're not careful, the flesh will try to convince us to forget about the Spirit. And we create this fear-based moralism that turns us into, honestly, prideful and judgmental people. Because the flesh will tell you one or two things through legalism. It will either tell you that you are not good enough and you'll never be good enough, or it will tell you that you are better than everybody else. That's what legalism does. Either you are a failure because you cannot follow God's rules and you don't deserve the love of God, or it will tell you that everyone else isn't good enough because they can't follow God's rules as well as you can. And at the end of the day, the flesh will promise that you can accomplish freedom through your own works, but you can't unless you're perfect. And so what you will experience through legalism inevitably is not freedom, but rather exhaustion. You will be completely exhausted. And the second way the flesh promises freedom is to tell you that God is not actually for you. That, that God doesn't have your best interests at heart. That God is not for your joy. That, that if you are indulging yourself in sin, that that is actually good for you. If it makes you happy, it's okay. So if following Christ means that I have to give up my sin, so if you want to be bitter, or if you want to get drunk, or if you want to look at that and God is opposed to that, then that means that he doesn't actually love you. And it creates this entitlement in us that says, my life is my own and I can do whatever I want with my heart, my body, my mind. It's no different than legalism. Both are assuming that freedom can be found outside of Christ. Both are weapons that the enemy uses to deceive us and it stands in direct opposition of why you and I were created because you were created to yearn for God, to desire the satisfaction, joy, and hope that can only be found in God. That's why Paul says in verse 17, for they are opposed to each other. And then what does he say? To keep you from doing the things that you what? You want to do. You want to do. That statement by Paul tells us 
a lot. It tells us that we were created for God, to yearn for God, that when the Bible says that we were made in the image of God, he's not talking about, the Bible's not talking about a physical attribute at that point. Genesis 1.26, it says, God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. That the triune God gathers and he says, let us make man in our image, after us, that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, they live in perfect community with each other. They love one another perfectly, and they agree to make humanity in that image. It's the image of perfect communal love. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Spirit. The Spirit loves the Father. So in 1 John 4, 8, when it says God is love, that's not an action statement. That's a statement about who God is. It's a statement about the character of God and how God interacts with himself. He is, at his core, love. And he didn't create us because he needed us, but he created us to know who he is, to love, to experience the same kind of love that God experiences within himself. You were created to know and experience the core of who God is. God is love. And the Trinity says, join us. Be a part of this perfect love. And he's given humanity this value, this unbelievable value that, that, that nothing else in the world has. Like, the stars will never experience God like you will. Your dog, as cute as he may be, will never experience God like you will. There's a value and a dignity to humankind to experience what it means to be fully, holistically loved that nothing else in the universe will ever experience. That he has looked at us and said, join me, that we are born this is the, the, the doctrine of Imago Dei, that we are born in the image of God in our unique and value and dignity. So, so at the end of the day, what we really want to know is our creator. What we really want to know is our creator. And living the way of the Spirit is what we most deeply want. Yet, the sinful nature continues to generate alternative and competing desires. You know this. You feel it. They contradict our deepest desire, knowing God. And the renewed person, so the Christian, has both sinful desires and godly desires. But what we really want is what our spirit-renewed hearts want. And that statement by Paul, it, honestly, it should fill us with hope and affirmation that even when we are falling into sin, that we pray that we can say with Paul, this is not who I am. Like when, when you do that thing that, that you hate doing, when you have that sort of attitude or enmity or, or you look at something that you're not supposed to look at, when you do that thing that you would say, I hate this. This is not who I want to be. This is not who God has created me to be. This is not better than Jesus. This is not what I want. I want to know him. I pray that you would say that. I pray that I would say that. That I want to know him, the, the, the God who came from heaven to earth, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, rose from the grave, and calls me his own. I want him. I want the gospel. And for many of, in this, of us in this room, we feel that tension sometimes daily, that we feel that battle happening. And, and let me say this, if, if, if there's a specific example, like if you're one of those that you do feel it right now, 
If there's a specific example that comes to mind as I talk about that battle and the way that the flesh attacks us, either through legalism or choosing something else other than God, if you feel that and you feel uncomfortable, man, I hope you know that that is exactly the role of the Spirit. Waking up your soul to say, look, He is for you. He wants you. He knows you. Reminding you that the only place you will find peace, hope, joy, and satisfaction is not looking to yourself. It's not looking to anything else. It's embracing your original purpose, that the perfect love of God is displayed through Jesus on a cross. But it's a battle. So here's a question. How do we ensure that the voice of the Spirit is louder than the voice of the flesh? Paul gives us two examples here that I think are helpful. First, in verse 16, he tells us to walk. So he says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So when you see that word walk, I want you to think of two words, proximity and intentionality. So another way, a way to think about this is to walk by the Spirit is first is to be in proximity to the Spirit, to be close to the Spirit, that it's important to to remember the many roles of the Holy Spirit, and one of them is that the Spirit's job is illumination, okay? The Spirit helps us know God. It's a relationship. helps us know God and understand the things of God. So let me ask you a question. Do you believe that God loves you? The Spirit helps you actually believe that. Do you believe that God will keep his promises? The Spirit illuminates to you why that is true. However, if you don't consistently position yourself to hear those things from the Spirit, then the probability is that you may not have those things illuminated for you, not to limit what the Spirit can do, but there is an element of positioning yourself to hear from Him. This is why we read our Bible. This is why we pray. This is why we spend time in biblical community, because it's in those places that the Spirit is likely to show us who God is. But it's more than just proximity. Proximity isn't enough. It's about being intentional and engaging with the Spirit. Because you know this, it's possible to read your Bible, it's possible to go to church, it's possible to do all the Christian things, but actually not know God. So to walk by the Spirit is both to position yourself near God, but it's also to intentionally engage with God. To be intentional with talking with God, while yes, God can work anywhere as he is present everywhere, you are more likely to hear God when you are gathered with his people, the word being preached, the word is being sung, but proximity isn't enough, that's where you start, it's a conversation. It's asking God a question, it's being intentional in this moment, right now, to look at the text, to listen to what I'm saying, and compare that to the text and say, okay God, what is true? What is true here? That you don't even trust my word for it. <laughs> you look at the text and you say, God, what do you want to say? Not just ask for things from God when you pray, but listen. Listen to what God would have you say, that, that while you read your Bible, you pray those words back to him. So many times in Scripture, that's, that's how you see people pray. He, it's people telling God what God has already told them. <laughs> God, you say you are this. So God, will you be that for me today? It's intentionally engaging, like, sharing with him the places in, you, in your life where you feel that temptation the most. Meditating on his word. Meditating is an idea that we don't really talk about much and we don't really know a lot about. But when you 
here in Romans 5 where Paul says God has poured out his love in your hearts. Poured out his love in your hearts. And take that text, something like that, and chew on it throughout the day. God, what do you mean by that? I don't understand. That's imagery that I, I don't really comprehend. What does it mean that you have poured out your love in my heart? What does that mean for my family? What does that mean with how I interact with my coworkers? What does that mean what I think about myself or the sin that I did 10 years ago? What does that mean about what my boss thinks about me? You have poured out your love in my heart. What does that mean? And you take moments and time to think, to meditate, to contemplate, to chew on the words of God. But then Paul says, the second thing is you have to be led by the Spirit. So walk by the Spirit and then to be led by the Spirit. Verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So under the law is believing that a certain action creates affections in God's heart towards you. That's seeking the law for salvation other than trusting Christ for salvation. And here's the deal with the law. The law focuses on the external things of us, okay? Do this, don't do this, do this. Don't do that. External. It, it, it shows external reality. So if you're a liar or if you lie, you know that you lie because the law says you lie. If you steal from me, I know that you steal because you what? You stole from me. The law reveals external th- things. Do this, don't do this. The work of the Spirit illuminates what's going on in our hearts. It gets to the root, the internal. And we tend to really focus on the external more than we do the internal, and we, mean, and we tend to separate them. And here's what I mean by that. Like, we might say, I lied. But would you call yourself a liar? Like, you are a liar. You might say that you got angry, but would you call yourself an angry person? The work of the Holy Spirit is not to just engage those external actions, but it's to get to the root, to say, why did you do that? What is going on there that would make you act in that way? It's not just that you were angry, Colton. It's that there's something happening here that is not right with God. You know what? It's not just that you sinned. It's that you are a sinner. It's not just the external. It's, it's that there is something in us that wants to run away from God. It's something in us that wants to move as far away from him as possible. And it's this battle of the flesh and the spirit. And the flesh wants to say, well, you just did something bad. You can just fix that and not do it next time. But it doesn't work like that. There is something in us that wants to rebel. And the spirit goes after that. That's where he goes. See, the law is about these external realities, but the Spirit is about transformation, changing your heart from the inside out. So to be led by the Spirit is have the Spirit deal with those things of your heart that are in rebellion. It doesn't just put a Band-Aid on the struggle where it fixes it for a little bit, but then it just reappears in a different way, but it goes after the root of the struggle. So it's not just that you're bitter about something. It's that there is something in you that has refused to live in the freedom of Christ, that you have refused to trust God fully, to believe in his promises and live in faith. And your external sins, they're a diagnostic to what really needs to be addressed. And too many times we try to fix a singular sin rather than allowing the Spirit to really transform us. Now, in our text, in a second, Paul's going to take this idea and he's going to transition to some specifics, okay? He will identify 
what exactly are the works of the flesh and the works of the Spirit. And in these works of the flesh, we see four different categories. And the first is a fun one. And the, work, the first work of the flesh is in our sexuality. So let's talk about sex, baby. So this is an important talk because our world has gone crazy on this topic, okay? On the topic of sex. sex. And the church has either avoided this topic altogether or it has been incredibly ungracious to those who have a tendency to struggle with any kind of sexuality. So, verse 19. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. So, the first thing that I want to do is I want to remind you, and I'm glad we had no kids today and that your kids are here to talk about this. And so, I hope you have good conversations. Um, But I want to remind you that sex was God's idea. He came up with the idea. In fact, he gave you the tools for it. Just saying, right? Sex is a gift. It's a gift. It's a gift from God. And in the confines of a covenantal marriage, it is to be celebrated and embraced. It, is, it can be a source of joy and intimacy. But here's the deal, and you know this. Sex is incredibly powerful. Marketing companies know this, that because of sin being introduced into the world, the culture we live in has taken sex and has weaponized it to be a thing that it was never meant to be. Sex is meant to be shared intimacy between a husband and a wife where they say we belong to one another. I am all of yours. You are all of mine. I am committed to you. And together you get what Hebrews calls a mingling of the souls. And it's in that commitment between a man and a woman that you will find intimacy where the flesh, what the flesh does though, is the flesh says, you don't need that commitment. You don't need that covenant. That engaging in sexual activity outside of the covenant of marriage, here's what it comes down to. It is trying, in its simplest form, it is trying to find satisfaction and pleasure outside of God himself. As the old saying goes, it's drinking in sand and wondering why we're still thirsty. And that's why we have so many people in our churches addicted to things that they shouldn't be addicted to. Because through sexual sin, the flesh promises something that can only be found in Christ. Intimacy. True intimacy. Intimacy and sat- satisfaction. And, and if you're in here and you're engaging in some sort of sexual sin, here's what I want you to know. That promise that your flesh tells you is lying to you. It's lying to you. It cannot do what it says that it will do. It cannot give you the feelings. It cannot give you the joy. It cannot give you the hope that Christ can. You are being lied to. And do not fall for it. Listen to the voice of the Spirit. And the other part of this is, and you know this too, no one is free from its temptations. The moment that you think you have it under control, it will come again. We are all sexually broken. And here's the other part. You know, this sensitive topic, if there's someone who, if you're someone who maybe has a past where there is a lot of sexual sin, sometimes you don't feel welcome in a place like this. And here's what I want to tell you. Christ has redeemed you. Do not let anyone tell you anything different. He has loved you. He has cared for you. And you belong in this place. 
So if you're someone who maybe struggles with that, I want to encourage you, you are welcome here, and we hope that you never leave because Christ has you in the palm of his hand, and he will not let you go. The second work of the flesh is religion. Uh, Paul says idolatry, sorcery. Now, this could be witchcraft or worshiping something else as a god. It, it could also be, and you may be familiar with some of this, trying to reproduce or copy the work of the Holy Spirit through some other power. Like, like Hinduism is an example that could fit under idolatry, um, which positions Jesus as if it were just another god. And so that one is pretty simple to understand. The third act of the flesh is attitudes. It's your attitude. It's attitudes of the flesh. He specifically mentions enmity, strife, jealousy. Enmity is ill will or hostility. And yesterday, because I only had 24 hours to prepare, yesterday, as I was thinking about this, um, I, I thought about us, our faith family. I thought about the last several months. I, I thought about my sabbatical. And with everything that has happened over the last several months in our faith family, I can only assume that you have experienced this in some sort of way. Enmity, strife, jealousy. That maybe you have or have had ill feelings towards someone else. Or maybe something, someone said something to you out of their flesh. I, I know for me, for the first couple months of the sabbatical, I was filled with enmity, strife, jealousy. I was filled with it. And it almost destroyed me, but it was only because of the power of God and honestly, just an understanding of the grace of God, that he was able to pull that out of me. An understanding that I have no right, I have no right to have ill will or hostility towards anyone. And here's why. Because in the midst of my hostility towards God, what did he do? He forgave me. He forgave me. He embraced me. He put on flesh and he died on a cross for sin even though I was completely hostile to him. He looked at my hostility, and he said, I forgive you. I remember sitting with our counselor, and he asked me a question that was a turning point for me during our sabbatical. He said, if you were to surrender all those feelings of hostility, if you were to surrender all of that, what would God give you in return? If you were to surrender all those feelings of hostility and, and anger, what would God give you in return? And in that moment, scripture after scripture, these thoughts, these ideas, these theological truths just kept coming to my mind. What did he give me? Peace, hope, forgiveness, joy. So let me ask you the same question. For those of you that you might be holding on to enmity, ill will, hostility, strife, jealousy, if you were to take those feelings and you were to surrender those to God, what do you think he would give you in return? What do you think he would give you? What comes to mind? Really think about it. Where does your true freedom really lie? Do you really think that it will come from holding on to hostility? Do you really think that freedom will come from holding on to strife or jealousy? Or do you really believe that it will come from Christ? See, they both promise the same thing. Be angry. Be mad. Be hostile. That will make you feel better. That will give you freedom. They make the same promise, but only one can deliver. Christ is the only one that can make you feel whole. He's the only one. 
And then he, Paul goes on, and he says, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. And I believe that he purposely lists these after enmity, strife, and jealousy because the results of the flesh, they, they build on one another. And so if you're hostile, you will see fits of anger. You will see divisions. You, this, is, this is where churches split. It starts with a disagreement and a person or a group of people being hostile toward another, and the people in the church respond. They respond in anger. Rivalries begin to form. The visions start to arise. And all of a sudden, before you know it, the flesh has won. And so, church, we have to kill hostility. If it's here, it's got to go. It has no place here. And each of us must examine our own hearts to see what role we play in that. Where are we in this? And we must have grace, incredible grace in our interaction with one another that shows that we are not walking in the flesh, but we are walking in the spirit. The fourth thing we category we see here is addiction. Paul mentions specifically drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Now, when you see orgies here, don't think that it belongs in the sexual category. Um, when it says drunkenness and orgies, those are two words that are actually one word in the Greek. And so when you see those two words, think indulgence, okay? Indulgence, giving yourself completely over to something. I'm giving all of myself over to something so that I can have peace and rest just for a bit, so I can have this one moment of joy, this moment of happiness. It's, it's addiction. That's what it, what it is. Anything that you would give yourself fully to in the hopes that it would bring satisfaction rather than Jesus. And then it says things like these. So, question, could food be on here? I think so. Food's not bad, but if you give yourself over to it to find satisfaction, that's a work of the flesh. Notice that it doesn't say wine, it says drunkenness, because wine in itself isn't bad, but an overindulgence of alcohol is a work of the flesh. Could exercise be on here? I think so. I think there are a multitude of things that could be on here. Entertainment, social media, there are Numerous things that could be on here. But then Paul says something that is actually pretty terrifying. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not, not inherit the kingdom of God. If you continue to live a life of the flesh, then you will not be with Christ at the end of all things. I think we're meant to think of what Jesus said in Matthew 7, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God of God. Now that's the work of the flesh. What is the work of the Spirit then? Verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And so here's what I want to do. I want to point out four ways, okay? When we look at all these words and these ideas, four ways that we grow and the fruit of the Spirit. And here's the deal. I think sometimes, I know for me when I became a Christian, like there was this, there was salvation, and there, then there was this, I want to conquer the world. <laughs> I want to change everything about my life. When I, I was 16, 17, I want to change everything about my life, and I want to be perfect, and that just doesn't work. Typically, growth in the Spirit is gradual. It's gradual. It happens over time. And I would be willing to bet if I asked you to say, okay, if you've been a Christian for 20 years, what, do you still struggle with the same sins? 
I'd say, I'd, my, I think you would say, mostly not, but yes and no. I think you would say, I, I struggle with some of the same things, but in a different way. If you've really been growing over these last 20 years, then yeah, there is still a struggle there, but it's not the same as it was 20 years ago. And over time, there is a gradual growth in the Spirit. You might struggle with them, but you struggle with them differently. Second, growth is inevitable. It's going to happen. If you are following Christ and you are walking by and being led by the Spirit, then growth is guaranteed to happen. It will. Third, growth is not just external, changing your behavior, but it is internal. Remember, the Spirit doesn't just go after the external, but it goes after the internal things of your heart. It goes after the root of the issue. And fourth, growth in the Spirit is holistic. I want you to notice something. In this text, is that word fruit singular or plural? It's singular. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And that's important because if it's plural, then you can begin to play this moral game that is not Spirit-driven where you can single out one of these attributes and say, well, I'm really growing in peace, but I'm not really growing in patience, right? These attributes, they don't grow apart from one another. They grow together. They all grow together. If you are following Christ and growing in the Spirit, then you, just, you won't just grow in one of these. You will grow in the fruit of the Spirit. If you are growing in patience, then you will grow in love. They grow together. So here's the question. We've seen the works of the flesh. We've seen the works of the Spirit. We know that they are opposed to each other. We know that a battle is going to happen. So when the battle happens, how do we approach it? First thing, we remember who we belong to. Verse 24, and those who belong to Christ Jesus. We remember that we belong to him. Jesus knows you better than anybody ever will. He knows the good. He knows the great. He knows your personality. He knows your flaws. He knows the things that you've never told anybody else. He knows the places your mind goes that you would dare not share with anybody else. He knows the deepest and darkest things. And you know what he did? He came for you. He bought you with a price. You belong to him. So where does this crazy idea come from where we think that God doesn't love us or that God would just give up on us? Where does that idea come from? Because I've, I've had this conversation with myself and with many of you, this idea, like what makes you think that he's going to give up on you? Where has he shown that? Where has he said that? Where does that idea come from? It comes from the flesh. To think that God has given up on you, to think that God does not want you. I promise you, he is present with you right now. You are a son or a daughter of the king. And he will never give you up. He never will. His promise of freedom is not empty. As, as Paul says in Romans eight thirty-eight. I am sure, listen to this, Maybe familiar. Listen, I, I, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, things happening right now in your life, things to come, things that are going to happen in the future, nor powers, government, parents, teachers, bosses, whatever, doesn't matter, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God 
in Christ Jesus, our Lord. He raised from the grave. Like, he was dead, and then he wasn't. He has the power to hold you in his hand forever, and he will. So how do we approach the battle? First, we remember that we belong to Jesus. You are his, and that will never change. Second, we crucify the flesh. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions. And so first, that we allow the Spirit to go after the root of your sin, but then you put some defenses around you to ensure that the flesh can't even tempt you. To crucify means to put to death. So those who belong to Christ have put to death the flesh. It's, here's the deal. It's not legalism that if you struggle with alcohol, to not be around alcohol. That's wise. It's not legalism if, if you struggle with looking things at your phone that you know you shouldn't, that you put filters on your phone. That's not legalism. That's wise. It's not legalism to do something that, to stop the flesh when you know it's going to tempt you. So it's twofold. You go on the defensive. You know where the flesh is likely to win, and you put some barriers around that. You kill the opportunity for the flesh to ever tempt you. But that's not enough. It's also asking God to stir your affections so that your desire for him would grow. So that when the battle comes, the gospel looks so much better than that thing. One of my favorite quotes is from St. Augustine. He says, in the moment he was saved, he said, how sweet, how sweet. All at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys that I had once feared to lose. Those fruitless joys that I had once feared. You drove them from me. He says, you drove them from me, and you took their place. I loved this, and you pushed it out, and you put you there. Satisfaction, hope, joy. You drove them from me, and you took their place. Next is verse 25. We, we keep in step with the Spirit. He says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. When you see that word step, you're meant to think of an army marching, right? For those of you who are in the military, that when an army marches, they keep in perfect step with one another. They are unified. And what we tend to do is compartmentalize the time we give to the Spirit, okay? We give him an hour and a half on Sunday, an hour and a half at home group. Uh, maybe if we remember to wake up and pray, an hour here, an hour there. But keeping in step with the Spirit is a rhythm. There's a rhythm to it that throughout your day you are thinking about the things of God. When you have a conversation with someone about anything, you're asking God, God, what could I have done differently in that conversation? What would you, what, is there a scripture, is there, is there some kind of encouragement you would have me share with them? God, <laughs> my kid just did this, and I don't know what to do. I need your help. <laughs> There's so many things, but it's keeping in rhythm with the Spirit, talking to him, meditating on his word, focusing on him. And we do this all in community. We do this all in community. The Spirit makes possible our unity. We can't do this with, without one another. But the Spirit reveals to us through the people of God where we need help. The Spirit reveals to us how we can be encouraged. The Spirit reveals to us the words of God through one another. The Spirit reveals to us the people of God the places we're blind, and the opposite end of that is that the work of the flesh will destroy our unity. The work of the flesh will destroy our unity. So church, we fight this battle together. Let us keep in step with the Spirit. We cannot reach Bell County and the world if we try to do this with our own ideas, our own capabilities, and our own power. 
It's the Spirit that changes hearts and lives. So may we not be led by the flesh. That's main goal is to divide us and to destroy us. We would be led by the Spirit. And the only destination you can go to if you are led by the Spirit is the glory of God and satisfaction and hope, joy, peace.